Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Is hair a material? Are biscuits a material? Are crystals a material? Is plastic a material? Is porridge a material? Can gases be a material? Are eggs a material? Is water a material? What do you call everything that isn't a material? (laughs) Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at your question. And yet you continue to do so. Hello listeners, welcome to episode 13 of Real Talk. As ever, I'm your host, Anna Pajajski. And in this episode, I was joined at the Eagle Labs studio by Sarah Day, who is an earth science communicator at the Geological Society in London. We got together to talk all things meteorites, and I started by asking Sarah about her relationship with these extraterrestrial materials. I tend to come across meteorites mainly in the form of blurry photos which get emailed to me on a reasonably regular basis by people who think that they might have found a meteorite in their back garden, which is obviously one of the things that everyone would love to say. Often these, well, almost always, these are small, dark-coloured, very heavy rocks. Things that people have picked up and thought, gosh, there's something weird about this rock. Maybe it's a meteorite. Okay, but perhaps sometimes they're just rocks that people have thrown at other people and then they think it's come from the sky, but it's actually just come (laughs) from... Well, I suspect most of the time people haven't witnessed the fall of this particular rock. They've stumbled upon it in some (laughs) other way. Um, And I would say 99.9% of the time, no, it's not a meteorite. (laughs) Okay. So the material that we're talking about then is rocks that fall from the sky in the form of meteorites. That's right. The first question that I have in my mind is, what's the difference between a meteorite and a meteor? So this is one of those thorny areas of terminology which gets people tangled up, um, including me. So essentially, um, most meteorites come from the asteroid belt. These rocks that are orbiting um, between Mars and Jupiter. And if one of those manages to fall out of that orbit and reach the Earth's atmosphere, and what happens then is that they become a sort of streaky fireball, which is what we call a meteor. So when you see what's called a shooting star, the official word for that is meteor, um, if that rock manages to survive that process and lands on the surface of the planet for someone to come and pick up and have a look at then that's when we would term it a meteorite okay and so geologists love calling rocks something ite right yeah we've got so many words for rocks and a lot of them end in ite well is there a reason or is that just like a thing that they say it's a chemistry thing isn't it there's something it's a latin ite and eight don't ask me. Oh, maybe. I don't know. Only chemistry. I've said this before on the podcast. I've already shamed myself already in front of Jill Jack. Can I? Can I tell that. you my the name of my favourite rock? Of course. Many people tell me the names of their favourite rocks. Coming tonight. A classic. 
<laughs> you hear that every day of your working life, don't you? I would say you're not the only person for whom that is the favourite rock. <laughs> you're not the only teenage boy that has said that to me. <laughs> Joel's just full of very immature phrases. Oh, go on, tell me some more. Well, cleavage. Is a <laughs> yeah. Listeners, tweet us your favourite geology innuendos. We must have been finding meteorites for as long as we've been walking the Earth. We can't have always known that they've come from the asteroid belt. Have there been any strange harebrained theories over the history of humankind that we've thought the meteorites have come from? Well, I mean, it's true that witnesses of meteorite falls, for as long as we've been recording anything in history, we've been recording these events, and they pop up in all sorts of records of history. And the idea that they came from space was, for people until relatively recently, was a completely bonkers idea. People did not go along. I mean, you would be ridiculed for suggesting it, as some people did. But they were certainly considered very sacred objects by a lot of cultures. And because they'd been witnessed to fall from the sky, which essentially means that they're something otherworldly. So a lot of cultures throughout history have um, sort of venerated these objects. I mean, some of them literally. I'm pretty sure there was a Roman emperor who had one um sort of paraded around and i think it was sort of worshipped as a almost as a god in this particular society um i think it got married off so, <laughs> i don't i can't remember what it got married rocks to. women yeah i mean it was obviously male it's this precious object that had landed oh, sure, sure. um and they had a sort of ceremony and married it to something i can't remember what now another ob- object another so. object yeah to be honest, if I was a Roman woman, I'd probably prefer a rock to a husband. I mean, it's not a bad thing to end up with, isn't it? I don't know if they married it to an actual woman. <laughs> I think they married it to one of their female gods, so I guess not. Oh, okay. Um, hang on. It was it was symbolically married off. I'm now reading directly from my colleague Ted Neal's book, Incoming, which is a fabulous read of crazy story throughout history of what people have thought about meteorites, but also modern theories and things like that. And yeah, it says tributes from all the other gods were brought and the meteorite, which was male naturally, was symbolically married off to the two female deities, Astarte and Urania, appropriately representing the moon and the universe. Ah. So they they had a sort of wedding. Um, I mean, there's a theory, I don't know if it, I think it's geologists are pretty sure it's not true, but there's a theory that the Kaaba stone, which is the the stone that um, Muslims circle uh, in Mecca, um is a meteorite and that that's why it's considered so special is because it had been seen to fall from the earth. I'm pretty sure geologists have since decided that that's not true, but the myth surrounding it suggests that people did know these objects fell from the sky because that stone was believed, at least, to have come from the sky. But among scientists, as soon as people started sort of applying their rational uh, enlightenment science brains to these things, it was a slightly laughable idea for a very long time. I mean, one of the reasons for this was that so many people who witnessed these events were people who were out working in the field or uneducated people um, who were not considered valid sources as witnesses for these events. And obviously they would have witnessed, they would have claimed all sorts of bonkers things to have fallen from the sky. So, you know, the medieval world is full of stories of blood raining from the sky and frogs and all sorts of things. So I think the rocks were considered just another one of those mad things that <laughs> okay. people said they'd seen and in fact hadn't. Right. But actually we now know that they probably were telling the truth. Yeah, so it took, I mean, it was more or less sort of the late 18th century that people started taking seriously the idea that it's possible that these, that the world of heaven and the world of earth could collide. So one of the reasons people were so sceptical was because the heavens were considered perfect. And this was the Aristotelian idea that there's this absolute impenetrable divide between heaven and earth, or the heavens and earth, um, and nothing could possibly cross that 
that physical that barrier physically um and aristotle obviously has a long long shadow across science and was venerated for centuries later so his idea that it's not possible that a rock could come from heaven and land on earth from the heavens um was was maintained and also then newton came along and said that the heavens were operating on these kind of perfect wheels and everything was moving in a perfect way and i think he actually specifically said if that's the case and if things were moving in that in that ordered manner then there can't be bits and bobs getting in the way of that and sort of grinding up the mechanism so it's ludicrous to think there'd be bits of debris floating about in space right and these and obviously newton as well was extremely influential sure so newton himself was was a meteorite skeptic oh yeah i mean almost all reputable scientists were I think. right okay so when did that start changing then it was sort of the late 18th, early 19th century was when things really started to move. I think a few people had suggested it before then, but it was really starting to take, be taken seriously at that point. And one of the reasons, I think, was people started observing these events more. And some of the people that observed these events were learned people, learned men, I should say. <laughs> of course. Um, and it was started to become a bit harder to deny that these events were happening. Um, and also the tools of analysis were getting better. People were starting to look into what these things were made of. Um, that's a whole field of science that I'm not an expert in, so I hesitate to delve into it. But I think they were discovering that there were elements in these objects which we don't find very often on the Earth. Um, so it started to lend credence to this idea that these must these objects must have originated from somewhere else. Right, so new chemical techniques and new kind of analytical techniques that were being used on rocks, probably from Earth, could now be applied to rocks from space, and they started to realise that they weren't one of the same thing. Yeah, that there were big differences between these objects. I mean, one of the one of the alternative theories that was quite favoured at the time was that these rocks might have been the product of volcanic eruptions. That you know, people had to come up with a way that a rock could have been thrown so high in the air that this enormous amount of energy had been stored and when it fell released. And one of the only things they could come up with that gave them a terrestrial origin was the idea that they'd been thrown out of a volcano and of yeah. course rocks do get thrown out of volcanoes and land um so that was a theory for quite a while as well um there was a particular meteorite that fell in italy in siena in italy and not long before vesuvius had erupted which gave a bit of a culprit um but the time between these events i, I can't remember exactly what the time difference was but it was several hours and people thought what, where has this rock been for those several hours? Right. Has it just been sort of really slowly falling or travelling in some strange way? Um, so it became quite difficult to come up with a theory where that made sense. Unless it had fallen from the sky. Well, yeah, and that particular meteorite landed in a place surrounded by scientists and learned people. And that was convenient. Yeah, so they it was witnessed by people considered more credible than people working in the fields. Right. And suddenly it became a lot harder to to come up with an argument that everyone who saw this happen was crazy. Okay. So around the same time as this Sienna meteorite, there was, um, in 1795, what we now call the Wold Cottage meteorite landed. And it landed in the estate of a guy called Edward Topham, who was a really fascinating character. He was a sort of media magnate. He'd set up newspapers and he'd been a soldier and he was this really flamboyant character. He'd had loads of affairs. And he he was a celebrity, basically. He was a celebrity of his day. And he wasn't there to see this meteorite land in his estate. It was um, in Yorkshire. But he heard about it and he was very interested and he came home and he started carrying out systematic interviews of people who had 
either witnessed it or seen it since and started collecting kind of information and trying to go about it in a systematic way. And so he was one of the reasons why people started taking these things more seriously because they took him seriously. So sometimes you just need a respectable advocate for these (laughs) things or what is considered a respectable advocate for these things. And that was another reason why this volcanic theory didn't really work because it looked quite similar to this Italian meteorite. Um, So the thinking was maybe they'd come from the same object but it was one thing to think that this volcano had erupted and several hours later a rock had fallen. But if about a year later a rock fell in Yorkshire <laughs> following the eruption of Vesuvius, then that just didn't work. So right. it kind of lent weight to this idea that something else is going on. And as far as we know, there aren't any volcanoes in Yorkshire. No, no, not to my knowledge. <laughs> Certainly not in 1795. <laughs> so all it took then was a small celebrity endorsement. As ever, yeah. (laughs) It helps. And I guess actually also around this time there must have been some friction between the scientists and the religious bodies who had quite a lot of influence all over society. I mean, yeah, science at the time was beginning to sort of formulate itself into separate disciplines. Um, And so the Geological Society where I work was um, established in 1807, Um, so slightly after the World Cottage Meteorite. But at that time people were starting to kind of draw ranks and identify themselves as a particular kind of scientist and geology and the church have a funny old relationship why so i mean it's almost a cliche isn't it that geologists came along and challenged religious doctrine and in 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 a sense that's that's a bit of a myth because a lot of the early day geologists as with other scientists a lot of them were clergymen or certainly believers if they weren't working in the church because the only way to get an education was to get it through the church well it was one of the main ways and also and it wasn't a cynical thing for a lot of them they really were managing to to reconcile these two beliefs we've gone way off the topic of meteorites oh no it's really interesting and i guess these people men would have been would have been philosophers and theologists and geologists yes absolutely yeah so having all these different ways of thinking about the same thing probably actually was more helpful in those days oh yeah and it it helped in other ways as well because um geology at the time is a very young science and one of the ways that geologists managed to sort of sell it as a as a pursuit worth going for was by associating it with these kind of public ideas about myths and religion. And so so they would talk about dragons and sea monsters. And, you know, it's not a coincidence that a lot of the creatures that were being discovered in the fossil record were likened to these sort of mythical beasts. And they were related to sort of creatures and objects that people would have felt familiar with in a kind of mythical context. Interesting. So, of course, one of the most famous historical meteorites that we can't not mention on this podcast (laughs) was the famous one that wiped out our dinosaur friends. Yeah, this is a really famous, um, one of the most famous events in geological history, really, I suppose, when you're talking about public understanding of geology. It's the one people know about Mm. the most. Um, And there's a huge crater called the Chicxulub Crater in Mexico, which we don't know if that's the crater associated with the meteorite that landed, but we're pretty sure... It's, a ra- it's about the right sort of time. Mm-hmm. So it's the finger is pointed at that crater. And obviously, debate continues about whether that meteorite is solely responsible for that extinction event or whether there were other factors at play. Mm. So one of them is the meteorite and the sort of devastating effect of this huge impact. Mm. And the other one is the idea that there was a kind of super volcano explosion of a thing called the Deccan Traps, um, which released enormous volumes of lava um, and that as well would have caused huge destruction Um, and there's evidence for both 
I can't tell you how contentious this gets in the world of geology. Sure. Um, but the prevailing argument, I think, is that it's a bit of both. Which okay. is usually the way that we like to come down when mm-hmm. we're not quite sure. Yeah. Okay. But I think it, it makes sense that it would be a sort of compound effect. So how likely then, theoretically, how likely is it that we could see another one of these events occur? Great question. That's the one everyone wants to know, isn't it? Mm. Um, I mean, essentially, it's incredibly unlikely. Um, obviously, given enough time, these things, the, the probability of these things largely um, increases, uh, but... Yeah, obviously, given enough time, it could happen. But for us and for the, for our species as a whole, I think it's extremely unlikely. We're I mean, more likely to wipe ourselves out before. Oh, totally. Too, right? Yeah, I mean, that's a comforting <laughs> thought, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of things that... Um, I mean, also, I don't know... Obviously, there's a huge range of how big these events could be. And something that would literally wipe out the whole human race would be quite tough because we're spread so far across the world now that you'd have to work really hard to eliminate everybody. I mean, you could create huge destruction in particular areas. This is a cheery chat. <laughs> um, but yeah, mostly I think you would have huge devastation and then slowly slow recovery. Mm. But it would be very slow. It would be in the order of, I think, tens if not hundreds of thousands of years for the Earth to get over it if wow, it was something okay. that big. Yeah. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So we are now sure that meteorites come from outer space. We're pretty sure about that, yeah. We're pretty sure about that. Presumably the one that came through the atmosphere to wipe out the dinosaurs was huge. Yes, that would have been a biggie. Yeah. <laughs> so those ones are particularly rare. Right. So the Chicxulub impactor had an estimated diameter of 15 kilometres. What? So that's kind of hard to visualise. And delivered an estimated energy of 10 billion Hiroshima bombs. So 15 kilometres is like most of London. I guess. Yeah, that's big. Yeah. So, yeah. That's huge. The odds of that happening are just vanishingly small. Sure. Yeah. So I guess with most meteorites, they would break up on entry. There are people, obviously, who are monitoring these things and making sure that if anything comes close, we have a plan. And and if they come close, consi- what's considered close to enough to make it into the news, then they're still 
really far away from us um so nothing's ever come like within reach basically in the time that we've been looking out for them um but if they do hit the atmosphere because of the speed that they're traveling and the huge amounts of energy involved there it's it's essentially the same as if they hit concrete so they just shatter and a lot of them will burn up in this process if they're small enough they'll burn up completely as they're going through this process of being a meteor so a lot of them we just never see land Um, and if they do land then they're usually quite tiny Um, and a lot of them we never know because they'll land in in the sea or in a place where there's no one to see it but yeah they the, the huge amount of energy that they're carrying sort of shatters them as they enter the atmosphere and then it's just about hoping that the bits aren't too big by the time they get to us that to cause any real damage yeah yeah which you know they I mean they've they've landed on people's cars and wow. like crushed the roof of a car and things like that they've that would be such a bad luck day wouldn't it oh god totally and i forget where that happened but the guy that that happened to tried to get insurance payout for that and was told it was an act of god which is that strange clause that insurance companies have. Whoa. And I think he then, I'm, oh, I can't remember now if it's the same guy, but I, he he found the rock. And at the time, the Natural History Museum were paying quite a lot of money for the samples, depending on how heavy they were. Yeah. Um, and he chucked it away because he was so angry about this <gasps> thing that happened. So he didn't get his money from the rock either. Oh, double whammy. gutting. <laughs> um, but there was, I mean, no one's ever been killed by a meteorite that we know of. So that's kind of a myth. Directly. So, directly, yeah. 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 But yeah, there's no records of anyone being killed by one. There's occasionally people get hit by them, which is a pretty crazy thing no to happen. Way. So there was a lady in Alabama who one landed in her living room and it I think it like bounced off her radio or something. She was listening to the radio and it bounced off the radio and hit her. Wow. Um but she survived. Cool. There's a myth of a dog. There's a, a really popular idea that a dog in Egypt got killed by one at some point in the early twentieth century, but I think that's been proven to be a myth. Oh, just someone throwing a rock at a dog. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was someone throwing about I think a meteorite had fallen and someone thought it would be a cool publicity stunt to like say that it killed their dog. Oh, okay. Or something like that. Maybe it was someone's dog died and they needed a good excuse. <laughs> Oh, God, yeah, maybe they've been left in charge of the dog. <laughs> and something terrible happened. But luckily, a meteorite had landed not far away. Killed your wife's dog. It's an um, act of God. So you're not, never going to believe this. Yeah, uh... <laughs> the craziest things happened. Well, okay, this brings us to an interesting point, because earlier you said that people often write to you and ask, is this a meteorite or is this not? How would someone realise whether it was a meteorite or not that had just landed in front of them? So one of the clues, one of the many sort of telltale signs is if it's quite heavy. But I mean, all rocks are heavy. So you have to sort of tell, is it heavier than I would expect this sized object to be? Okay. So density is one of the clues. Um, and quite often they're magnetic because of the metal that's within them. So if, if you've got a rock that something magnetic is sticking to, then maybe. <laughs> okay. Uh, again, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, the surface is going to be quite smooth, kind of featureless. There might be sort of divots in it it's not going to be perfectly spherical so quite often people find a perfectly round rock and think oh yeah i've got a meteorite that's almost certainly not a meteorite for that reason okay it's not likely to be a completely perfect sphere and there's also something called tektites which people quite often think are meteorites and they're related so they're what happens if if a meteorite lands and the the earth around it gets thrown up in the air it gets very quickly melted chucked in the air and then it lands um so it's they're kind of glassy because they've cooled really fast um, and they have these weird sort of droplety shapes because they've sort of fallen through the, through the air um, and tektites are really cool they're not meteorites but they're kind of the closest thing we're going to so they are terrestrial in origin yeah. but they are caused by the impact of a meteorite ah cool actually yeah I, I heard about those in the the dinosaur one 
they, oh, they found, yeah, yeah, they yeah. Found I think that's one of that's one of the clues that yeah. that cr- because obviously an impact crater doesn't look classically like an impact crater. You you wouldn't necessarily. Mm. I mean, it took a lot of study and research to figure out that the Chicxulub crater is a crater, and I think that's one of the clues that led people. Yeah, to, yeah. You also get those um, when they did the the nuclear bomb tests because of the extreme heat and the extreme pressure exerted on the sand around. You get glass made of out of the sand and like yeah so they're really kind of weird quite cool looking objects um, yeah uh, sort of worth collecting in their own right really Mm, yeah so meteorites have been revered as a sort of lucky find and you know an amazing object from outer space what are scientists using them for now what are we studying with them essentially meteorites are sort of little time capsules so because the majority of them come from the asteroid belt, they were formed when the Earth was formed. So when all of the stuff that was floating about began to kind of coagulate into into objects. So one of the things that meteorites can do is tell us the age of the Earth, because we don't have any rocks from the Earth's earliest days on the Earth. So if you're a geologist studying our planet, you won't find rocks old enough to tell how old the Earth is. And that's because we have plate tectonics. So all of the rock that we can study has been reworked through subduction and then returned to the surface of the planet. So we can't study rocks from the Earth's earliest days, but a meteorite is essentially a clue to that. So the meteorites we find from the asteroid belt have been dated um, in using radiometric dating, which is you know, it's kind of like the same principle of carbon dating, that you can use this, isotop- this um, radioactive decay, but using elements that last a lot longer. So carbon decays way too fast to be useful for anything older than in the order of thousands of years. Um, so the, most of the meteorites that we find are from the asteroid belt and they've been dated to around about 4.5 billion years. So Whoa. that's a clue to the age of the Earth. Um, and also they tell us about the composition of uh, the early solar system. Not all meteorites come from the asteroid belt. So some of them have come from other planetary bodies. The ones we know of are lunar meteorites. So bits of the moon, essentially if something's crashed into the moon and a bit of it's been flung off into space it might land and we can find it and study it and obviously we have space we have moon rocks that we've collected ourselves from the apollo missions um so that's one of the ways we can verify these lunar meteorites and say they're similar to the rocks we've brought back ourselves from the moon and that tells us lots and lots about the formation of the moon which is one of the great puzzles of geology Um, and we have meteorites from mars as well and these contain all sorts of clues about what's going on on mars and how mars formed um, and there's, if you study a Martian meteorite, you can find gas trapped within it, which we can compare to samples that have been collected from missions that have gone to Mars and analysed the atmosphere there. That's how we know that these meteorites are from Mars, is by comparing those analyses. So they are really the, a sort of flying time capsule that can tell us loads about the solar system and I think we're only just beginning to get to grips with this science so there's a long way to go so some of those lunar rocks that we've got have been since the Apollo missions they've been kept sealed and pristine um, in the expectation that one day we'll have better tools to analyse them Um, so at some point someone's got to be brave enough to crack them open and (laughs) decide that they've got something that is worth using to study them but they've been kept completely as they were when they were brought back amazing so i i imagine i don't know where those samples are in an entirety but i imagine they had a pretty heavy guard <laughs> to make right. sure that they were because one of the great issues to do with all of this science is is um, contamination so making sure that what we study is the object from space rather than something we've added to it or something like that um 
so the ideal really is to be able to go and retrieve rather than waiting for a meteorite to fall to go and retrieve these samples directly from the object that we want to study right and that's where really where the science is going and obviously we've started doing that with things like the apollo missions and there's there's lots more to come yeah actually this reminds me of a headline that i read which is about finding organic material inside meteorites which suggests Ooh, yeah. that the building blocks of dna these very very small molecules that can build up dna which can then build up living life eventually these are present in meteorites that we found so one question is well is this just dna from earth that has contaminated the sample but actually the more we study samples that are actually from the moon or from mars on mars rather than bringing them back to earth we're now gaining an understanding that actually these molecules are there in space and so the the building blocks for life are there which is so this is a theory isn't it that meteorites might have been the cause of life on earth to begin with yeah Um, could they have brought life to earth yeah yeah so I, i don't know where that debate's going but there are lots of different theories about how life began on earth and why we have it and other places don't and the idea that a meteorite brought with it the building blocks is is one of those theories so this talk of space has brought me onto this idea of space mining this is a really sexy subject in mining at the moment which is this idea that we can actually mine meteors and asteroids that are in space for our own materials oh. and the idea of this is not so much to send a probe up mine a passing asteroid and then bring the material back down to earth but more that these metals as we said earlier are quite heavy so actually using up all the fuel and the energy to blast these materials off from the earth's surface take them all the way to mars and then use them that's quite wasteful whereas if we had a colony on mars and there was a passing asteroid full of platinum or nickel or what or iron even or any of these useful metals being able to send a quick probe up mine it all out bring it back to mars is actually much easier than bringing all the materials from earth yeah okay so space mining space mining i'm sure spacex must be doing this and yeah maybe yeah yeah that's pretty cool oh yeah water water and oxygen can come from passing comets right yeah way that they ways that they think they might be able to sustain life on mars is this this crazy idea that we'll just send some people there and they'll figure it out oxygen and water wise yeah but comet comets is really yeah. like, genuinely a, a, a potential water source because they contain so much ice yeah which is madness i mean good luck to those sure. brave people yeah I'm, I'm not going to be among their number i mean yeah yeah <laughs> but good for you guys well yeah <laughs> okay we're right behind you <laughs> just really far back <laughs> where there's oxygen for all exactly um so i was going to ask you to sort of wrap up the podcast how can people get more involved or where can they see some meteorites but i already have the answer to this question because i have been on a date to the rock room in the natural history museum and i have Best seen date ever sorry right guys me. <laughs> i mean obviously it didn't work out however we're such a great beginning how is this possible <laughs> seriously though what um i've seen a meteorite in yeah. the rock room in the natural history museum and it's huge it's probably about a meter wide about half a meter tall it's black it's shiny it's got like beautiful kind of dimples on it and it's it's one of the rocks in the rock room that you can actually touch it's not behind glass and they encourage you to do so to touch this piece of space and it's phenomenally beautiful well this is one of the great things about meteorites they're the oldest thing you can have ever got your hands on Mm. by some way but you can just touch them and if you, you come up against sort of ancient 
sort of objects from cultures long dead. You can't touch these things. <laughs> They've got to be behind glass. Whereas your meteorite, it survived a fall from outer space. It'll yeah. be fine. <laughs> it's not going to disintegrate <laughs> in the Natural History Museum. Sure. Um, so there's such a great sort of tool for getting people excited about the science and the future of the science as well is, is the fact that these objects, special and incredibly rare though they are, can be touched and seen by people close up yeah and it's one way of experiencing i think just how small we are in the context of space like these objects as you said are so old like we are nothing in comparison to them and yet we can experience this short time with this really old object i think that's really cool yeah there's nothing like being told that something you're touching is 4.5 billion years old to make you feel really tiny you see these kind of geological timescales just mean nothing to, like 4.5 million 4.5 billion like, I know I appreciate yeah. that they're very different but they just mean nothing yeah on the human timescale right? it's, it's an impossible thing to to face and this was of course one of the big scary challenges of the early geologists who were starting to feel the bottom falling away from mm. their timescales and they went from kind of thinking in terms of thousands of years to these impossibly long eons of time and yeah it was one of the scariest sort of most challenging things that people had to deal with and still deal with yeah and we we can't imagine it and because it's so beyond our own intuition i think about time yeah it must be very difficult to be able to check whether you're right or wrong yeah and and you know all you've got is the word of a scientist telling you yeah we've checked and yeah and it's definitely that much time but this is i think one of the reasons people struggle so much or some people struggle so much with ideas about climate change and the future of the planet is because even though these things are actually happening now the timescales involved are still things that we can't quite deal with in our own sort of personal timescales um so it's hard to talk to people about the future of the planet in a kind of long-term way yeah it's a big challenge of geology in general and, and communicating it as well. Yeah, which it must be one of the attractions of it because it is so far, so much bigger than we are. Yeah. That must, that must feel sort of quite nice, really. Well, I think, yeah, I think people respond in various ways to these enormous timescales and one of them is just awe. Mm. Um, <laughs> Good pun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just, I can't help it. I'm just constantly coming out with them. <laughs> occupational hazard <laughs> yeah it's it's fear but it's also sort of I, I i think there is something kind of comforting about it you know and that's actually one of the other things and um, that i feel about how we i mean going totally off topic now that i feel about how we communicate climate change and the challenges of that is we need to start talking maybe a bit more about ourselves because the planet will recover eventually Mm. from these events but it's not really the point because yeah the planet changes all the time and the ice isn't always where the ice is now and that's not the point the point is are we going to be able to cope with the rapidity of these changes Mm. and do we want to survive as a species in a way that is manageable um don't worry about the planet yeah (laughs) it'll figure it out (laughs) it's just it might need us to go sure it probably will to be honest yeah all right, so if people want to send you their rock sample photos... Yeah, please don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to do that because it's funny, I guess that's fine. I, I, I used to do um, Science Show Off with, with Steve Cross. Um, I did that a few times. Um, and after that, I got so many people, like my friends, sending because the theme of these things that I did was the crazy things people send me 
um the questions they sent me about rocks and I got so many questions from my friends about rocks after that (laughs) yeah I guess a tempting one would be to send you a picture of a bottom and say like is this the moon yeah oh I guess (laughs) is this a lunar everything yeah is this a meteorite and it's It's like like the nerd equivalent of a dick pic yeah (laughs) please don't do that though Right, listeners, no dick pics or otherwise. That's just generally a rule, isn't it? Like, <laughs> to be fair. There's never a time when that's okay. <laughs> Consider that on all of the podcasts. I think that's just a public service announcement <laughs> yeah. for anyone not aware. But if you genuinely have a question about rocks, you can tweet into Real Talk. Or if people want to follow you and what you're up to, where can they find you online? Uh, so you can find me on Twitter at GeoWriter. That's GeoWriter. You can also have a look at my website, um, which is sarah-day.com, although that's uh, really not related to geology at all. Um, I also write novels. So my first novel came out last year with Tinder Press, um, and it's called Mussolini's Island, um, and it's a historical novel, very unrelated to geology, Mm -hmm. other than it's set on an island, I guess, and some volcanoes erupt during the process, (laughs) at least one. So it's the, the story of a group of men from Sicily, um, who were arrested in under Mussolini for being gay and they were put on a tiny little island in the Trimites and they were kept there as a kind of way to separate them from the population for a year. Um, so it's a true story, but um, the novel is a fictionalised account of that. Oh, and if you want to find out more about meteorites, you should check out Incoming or Why We Should Stop Worrying and Learn to Love the Meteorite, which is by Ted Neald, who is a colleague of mine at the Geological Society. Um, and that's published by Granter, and it's a fantastic read. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Sarah. Cool, thank you for it's having me. It's been great to talk to you. And I'm going to go and look for a meteorite. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> so that was my excellent and somewhat philosophical at times chat with Sarah Day. Thanks to Sarah for coming on the show. So now to the questions. The first question comes from Yasmin Ali, a.k.a. Engineer Yasmin on Twitter, who asks, my friend sent me some ferrofluid in the post. How and why does it work? And also, is it useful for anything? So ferrofluid is basically this weird liquid. It's magnetic nanoparticles which are suspended in oil. And I really recommend that all listeners go and look up ferrofluid on YouTube because it looks really, really strange. It's basically this black liquid that interacts with nearby magnetic fields from magnets and it kind of creates these weird spiky patterns in the fluid. It's very, very cool. It was actually developed by NASA scientists in the 1960s because they wanted to try and control liquid fuels in space where there's no gravity to help control the liquids. And it works because these magnetic nanoparticles align with magnetic fields of nearby magnets. If you're interested in ferrofluid, you can actually buy the stuff off the internet. It's relatively cheap to come by. Or you can actually make it for yourself, which I'm going to be demonstrating in my upcoming show, Smart Materials at the Cheltenham Science Festival, Clang. Um, So come and see me there if you're interested in that. Um, What's it used for? Well, it's used in loudspeakers as a sort of low friction dampener. So sometimes the diaphragms and loudspeakers can vibrate and oscillate when you don't want them to. So they use ferrofluid to dampen these vibrations, which makes them function more efficiently. They're also used in various other electronic devices like accelerometers and tilt detectors and flow meters, and also for bearings for moving parts and that kind of thing. That's it for this episode, but please keep tweeting and listening and reviewing the show online. We really, really appreciate it. And it's a brilliant way to help get other nerds listening to the podcast. As ever, you can always get in touch on Twitter. We're at Realtalk. Let us know what you think and keep sending in your materials questions. We really do love receiving them. 
So until next time, keep it real, and I'll see you next time on Real Talk. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.